Welcome to Hunting Land. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baia, here with my co-host Clint Flowers, and this week's show is brought to you by First South Farm Credit. What does a farm mean to you? Maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go to relax or enjoy the outdoors. But whatever the farm means to you, First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. As a successful financial cooperative, First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. Clint, uh, how'd your weekend go, man? It was good. Uh, we got offshore, got to watch a, uh, a big swordfish get hauled up over a few hours span and almost had a second one. So we've got a lot of meat to work our way through here, Joe. Yeah, no, uh, I know. I was uh, pretty impressed with the, uh, with the fishery this weekend. We had a good time out there fishing out of Destin, Florida with uh, Captain Adam Peoples of One Shot Charters. Uh, he does a great job for daytime sword fishing. We were able to boat a about a 200 pound swordfish and uh had a lot of fun and got caught the perfect weather window man it was slick flat calm and it's been blowing all last week it's gonna blow all this week in fact we got a heck of a cold front coming down right now uh sure did love to see that you guys uh you guys dried out up at your land yet y'all i got your uh, food plots planned out well the plan is this week but we're gonna see what this weather does to us yeah i know and then we still got some activity in the tropics so it's always just kind of that you got to watch watch that window this time of year. Man, we got a good show this week. We're going to be talking about something that we run into a lot uh, in the land business, and that's whether or not you should subdivide a piece of property. And if you do, how you can make some money doing that. A lot of times, in my experience, Clint, I mean, it's, it's a really good option for the landowner. Do you see the same thing uh, when you're, you know, there in Alabama? Yeah, as long as you protect the access and do it right, it's it's typically beneficial in either financial terms or time value. Yeah, well, we're going to discuss kind of the ins and outs of, of how to make money when you're subdividing land and some things you need to consider if, you, if you've never done it before with Kaylin Campbell of National Land Realty. But before we get there, uh, let's join up with Kaylin and Jason Burbage of National Land. We're going to get the how much is my land worth segments to start things off. And that's really going to tie in well with the topic of this week's show. So, fellas, we got joining us today are Jason Burbage, president of National Land Realty, and Kaylin Campbell with National Land Realty over in North Carolina. Guys, welcome to Hunt Land. Thank you. Well, Jason, you're the uh, you're up on the docket today. So, talk to me. Uh, what states are we going to be looking at today? Looking at land values. So, we're looking at uh, some western states today. As for those of you who've been following the podcast, we've taken segments from states in different parts of the country, and we're out west now. Of course, right now the west is getting burned up literally. So, it's it, it's an interesting environment going on out there in, in some of these states. But I pulled some stats from, from seven states, Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, and Utah. One of the things you always hear about when you think about Western land is how much of it, you hear a, a lot about really, really cheap land per acre. You know, how much of the of those Western states though is, is just public ground. I mean, is there a lot of private land sales out West? That's a great question. And it's something that, that depending on where you are, you don't necessarily think about, about that, how much public land is, is out there. 
And I can tell you that there are some states out west where the majority of the land that makes up the state is federally owned. Um, just for example, the state of Nevada, uh, 80% of that state is, is in federal acreage in various capacities. It's not all you know, national parks. It, it could be various different, de- different designations that are out there. You've got, you also have your reservations that are out there. And then Bureau of Land Management lands and, and a variety of other things. So it um, it definitely plays into things uh, for sure as far as what kind of options you've got available to you, uh, either for some if you're looking to purchase land or if you're uh, an existing landowner and want to add to what you've got or, or sell what you have. Jason, you guys are crunching a lot of data. Uh, are there any challenges with the data out west? Yeah, it's it, it does present challenges when you're looking at it from 30,000 foot view like I am in most cases. Different states have different reg, have different requirements and they, usually there's two main ones. You have states that are considered non-disclosure states and then you've got states where information is public. And so that impacts what kind of uh, information is readily available in non-disclosure states uh, because every property sale is not made public. For us, we rely a lot on our internal sales. Unfortunately, you know, we, we do a lot of that. So we've got the ability to have really good data because it's ours. But in those non-disclosure states where, where someone doesn't have the ability to track their own data or they're not doing enough volume to be able to do that, it can make it more challenging uh, to, be, to be able to track these property values. So it certainly plays in. It impacts the number of sales records you have access to to be able to take that, that snapshot of what that market's doing. But fortunately for us, we've got enough information that I can look at something from, especially from the, the aspect of what we're talking about today uh, pertaining to market trends and get a good feeling for it. With all that said, if I'm looking at, at a state like New Mexico, for instance, and I've got questions about something, uh, then I'm going to one of our land professionals in that state to get advice. I'm not making any kind of assumptions without talking to somebody that we've got on the ground who really knows what's going on. We've talked about that a lot on here, and but it's always worth repeating is that the purpose of this segment is to, is to look at the trend and, you know, are land values trending upward? Or are they trending backward? Are, are median acres trending upward? Are they trending backward? But no matter what, if you're gonna if you're gonna look at a local market to understand what your land's really worth, you've got to get in touch with a local professional and who's who puts boots on the ground at your place. I mean, if somebody's looking at your property and they're telling you what it's worth and they've never been there, take that with a grain of salt because everything is so unique in land. Are we represented? Is national land represented in in these six states? Yes. So there's local offices that somebody can reach out to there. I know they can go over to nationalland.com and find out who those brokers are in those states if they've got specific questions. But, you know, last time we had you on, I I really liked how you kind of talked about the the shining stars out west, you know, or excuse me, at, at that point, we were talking about different set of states, but you were talking about the states that were, were doing really well and, and kind of down the line from there. So where's our bright spot in these Western states? Well, if you're looking, if you're looking at this, you know, and purely basing it on, on value, on what the properties are worth from which states 
uh, have properties that are the most valuable based on dollar amount, then probably to no one's surprise, California is number one. I mean, there's so much wealth in that state. It ends up with year over year, pretty astronomical numbers. So for instance, the median price per acre in 2018, 2019, were pretty much the same in California, a little over 6,200 bucks an acre. And uh, in 2020, we're seeing a significant increase in price per acre. Um, but again, just like every other show that I've come on with you, 2020 is where we've only got a, a, a portion of 2020. So while everything's trending up in 2020, and I expect it to hold based on what we know for real time this far into, into the year, it's, uh, it's, it's all indications that, that things are, are continuing to look very strong and healthy for those markets. So California's, is, if you want to call it the shining star from the standpoint of the most valuable land, it's definitely that. Thank you. Um, Colorado is, is obviously known for its mountains, uh, the ranches that are in Colorado, the resort areas in Colorado, and as such, values are reflected there. But the interesting thing is with most of these Western states, that I'm looking at right now, you see a, you see California at $6,200 on a median price per acre. And then you've got Utah at the 4,000 price per acre range. And then the other states kind of, kind of drop off from there. And that's, that's interesting to me. And that's where I'd, I'd want to have more discussion as to what is causing that. Uh, knowing that you've got areas where there's ex- extremely valuable land. And then you've got other areas, as we talked about before, where you've got desert, you've got prairie land, you've got a desire for people to own property there. But you're talking about hundreds of dollars per acre, $100 an acre, $200 an acre, or less in some cases, versus tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars per acre in in other parts of those states. It's very interesting. And, and then when you start to think about arbitrage opportunities, you know, looking at some of those states that adjoin California, you've seen this in, in states like Montana, where you see a lot of people that are moving out of California, retiring, going to Montana, and they're driving property values up because they're able to sell their properties in California and move that money into a state like Montana and pay more than what the residents of Montana are used to paying. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, that really ties in well with, with the subject of, of today's podcast, you know, being how you can make money subdividing land. Because when you see people coming out of an area where incomes are higher, property values are higher, they're used to looking at, at land and thinking of it in terms of a price point. They're, they're used to seeing a lot that costs a certain amount of money. So when they see a lot in their home state, you know, maybe it's a quarter acre lot. And we're seeing this here in Florida. Folks are down in Miami, a quarter acre lot down there may be in the, you know, $200,000 range. And then they come up to the panhandle of Florida and they see that they can get 40 acres for $200,000. And they're just like, man, I'm in heaven you know, because I can get 40 acres up here for what I could only get a lot for back home. And they're willing to pay, you know, that price, that $5,000 an acre, but they're buying what timberland that really is only worth maybe 
$2,200 an acre or $2,000 an acre. And I think that that's a really good tie-in. But like you said, comes down to you, the trend, what you're seeing, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, what you're seeing is the trend in every Western state is on the upward trend. Yes, correct. I mean, it's, it's overall, everything is still looking pretty good there. There's some states that are a little bit better than others, but there's nothing, um, there's nothing that's really jumping out that's causing any kind of, any kind of, a, you know, major concern on mine. And it's quite frankly, it's, it's what we've seen around the country uh, over these past two and a half years. And again, I'm looking at 2018, 2019, and then what we've got for 2020. Um, and it's all indicative of that. The interesting thing regarding this information is what are we going to see after we get a complete set of data for 2020, what are we going to see pertaining to that median acre uh, number? And this data I've been looking at is I've just arbitrarily selected 50 plus acres just so that I didn't have a gazillion records to, to go through. But my prediction is that in 2020, you're going to see the median acre numbers drop because there's going to be more people entering the market more people looking for more space. And um, as a result, there's going to be uh, more opportunity to, to create the smaller parcels for folks that normally wouldn't even be in this market. I mean, wouldn't even be considered buying land. Now, because there's more demand, there's more opportunity for that. And, and really kind of leading into this conversation that we, we all wanted to have is that what does that look like for a current landowner or the land or a land investor who's looking for considering about whether to pull the trigger on an investment. How does that impact you? How long is this going to last? There's a, there's a lot of things that, that are really interesting going on right now in that area. Well, let's use that to segue into today's show. And Kaylin, I want to know, you know, in North Carolina, are you seeing the same things that we're seeing uh, in Alabama and Florida you know, if I take a 60 acre track, for example, and I divide that into a 35 acre and a 25 acre track, I'm seeing two to three times the number of inquiries on those two smaller parcels as I am on that, on that larger parcel. Do you see in North Carolina that subdividing a track gets that, that land a lot more interest? Yeah, thank you for, for inviting me to be here too, Joe. I appreciate it. But yeah, to answer your question, it does. And you had mentioned the scenario with the Miami buyer taking his $200,000 quarter acre lot and flipping it into a 40 acre piece of land for the same price. And that 40 acre piece of land may only be worth 2200 an acre. The interesting point there, I think, is is really a piece of property is, is worth what a buyer is willing to pay for it. So I would have to, you know, um, disagree with that statement a little bit because that property is now worth $5,000 an acre. It's not, you know, $2,200 an acre. So with the property being worth what someone's willing to pay for it, we're seeing that that sets your comparable. So now the other properties in that area and that acreage range within a certain radius of that property, we'll be able to use those as comparables and the other properties will appraise for that also. So when you when you subdivide tracks into smaller pieces, it, it creates a higher value for the property. There's more buyers that can afford a $50,000 piece of hunting property versus a $200,000 piece of hunting property. 
And you can accomplish that by creating smaller tracks. You know, we often go off of, of price per acres as a way to rate a value of a piece of property and typically larger, you know, tracts of land. We, we go off of, of price per acre and there's, there's different reasons. When I look at a piece of property to see what it's worth, you know, I, I look and see what, what's on the property. Is there timber on the property? Okay, well, what's the timber worth? You know, then we'll take, well, what's the land worth and add the timber? And that's what that portion's worth. But um, what I've seen in, in eastern North Carolina is it's very rare to have a 500-acre tract of land and the whole 500 acres be one type, a field, a stand of timber, the same stand of timber. There's different features that, that fluctuate, so the, the price. So I apply a price per acre to the different types of property, you know, types of uses on the piece of property. But when you get into to smaller pieces and subdividing into smaller tracks, the highest and best use changes. And what we've done is we've done several, you know, buy 100 acres or have a land has 100 acres and we'll subdivide it into 20 acre parcels. Well, now the highest and best use isn't hunting anymore. It's uh, building a house, a private homestead. You know, a lot of people are, are wanting to get out of cities uh, get out of town and and you know have some eggs, have their own chickens, have some eggs, and and kind of have a, a little mini mini homestead. And especially with COVID this year, I've had a higher demand for those type people starting to think, you know, maybe I don't want to be in a neighborhood where I've got people all around me. And to your point, you could take a quarter acre lot, take what that what that's worth, and uh, and go buy ten acres thirty minutes from your job. Yeah, you bring up a great point, and that's that that local professional needs to understand uh, what the highest and best use is in an area because it's it's not like you can necessarily go and take a thousand acres of river bottom land that's two hours from a major metropolitan area and just divide that up into twenty acre parcels and call them home sites because there's no demand for home sites in that area. So being able to understand that that highest and best use and and then go and look at comparables, not comparable hundred, you know, using your example of the hundred acre parcel that's divided into five 20 acre parcels. You're not going out and looking for, you know, hundred acre timberland comparables. You're going out and looking for 20 acre homestead comparables. And, and what are those properties selling for? And then being able to take that information back and price your property appropriately for the market. So when you talk about the, the folks that are out there looking for I call it a more self-sustaining lifestyle. Maybe it's chickens, maybe it's running some some cattle or having some goats or something like that. There's been a ton of interest of uh, folks looking uh, for those types of properties. I've also seen a lot of interest of people that are looking to get away from some of the civil unrest that is happening right now. They're worried by the the rioting that's happening uh, in the cities. And they're wanting to know that they've got a little bit of land to stretch out on and they don't have to worry about a peaceful protest and they're on their street. Uh, are you getting some of those same uh, types of feelings from buyers in your market? We are, you know, like I said before, COVID really has, has had an impact with people. It kind of wakes people up and, you know, it makes people realize, well, you know, what's important and what? And most every client I've spoken to says they're family. You know, they care about their, their, their family, and that's the most important thing, is the safety of their family. And owning a piece of land can guarantee, you know, self-sufficiency, you know, and you can, you can protect your family that way. And that's, we sell land to a broad spectrum of buyers, from investors that are looking to, 
you know, to take the money out of the stock market that's just been a roller coaster this last year and put it inside of a into a safe timber investment track, for instance. And then people that you want to go out and live on 10 acres and, and or 20 acres and, and be be self-sufficient. So I think the most important thing though, is like what you said, it's important to speak with the land broker about um, the local market. It's all regional. You know, it's you need to know if, if the area you're in would be conducive for for subdividing, uh, where your buyers are coming from, and national land actually. When we have listings, they'll actually tell you we'll get a listing report and it'll say the top five cities of where you know the internet traffic is driven. So. It's interesting the data that that we pull will actually tell us you know where our buyers are coming from, and the other thing too is you don't want to saturate the market. You know, people will get the idea. I'll get landowners call me and say, "Hey, I've got 200 acres. I want to do 10 acre lots, and it may be in a good area, but that area may only support you know 20 lots or or 10 lots or whatever the case is. So it's important to know the area and know that. You can't just go out there and, and subdivide a track into 100 lots and then expect to get rich. Um, you'll hit a point where you'll sell what you're going to sell, and then a lot of times you'll be stuck with the remainder. And then what does that do? You know, a lot of times that it may not necessarily decrease the value because you have your comparables, but you're waiting a longer time to, to hold on to that piece of property to, to sell it. So there's different strategies we use. You know, to Clint's point earlier, also, you know, road frontage access, you don't want to subdivide a track that's going to be detrimental to, to the remainder. Uh, I've worked with families of landowners that they'll say, hey, I've got 300 acres. Two of the three siblings want to sell, one doesn't, you know. So two of the three siblings will, will list with me and we'll, we'll sell it separately. But it has to be done in a manner that, that doesn't decrease the value of the remaining parcel. So it's it's imperative that you know a landowner or investor speaks with the land broker about the ways to properly go about doing it because if you don't it could have a uh, it could be ill-fated for sure yeah it can have a negative effect on on the rest of your property you know you brought up um you brought up not oversaturating a market and and we're talking about you know let's we'll go back to your example of the 100 acre parcel that you separate into 520 acre parcels when you're looking at those comparables and down in that, that the, the homestead type property, do you find that it's important to keep the property that you're subdividing at a certain price per acre? Or do you find it's more important or less important to just keep that, that property under a certain price point? How are you, how are you looking at that case by case? That's a good question. So it, it shifts. Larger tracts of land, 100 acres plus, it's it's price per acre basis. And for the reasons I mentioned earlier, different features on different properties, you have to evaluate a piece of property for what it's worth. And you can't put a blanket price across the whole property. You can get an average price per acre based upon the different features. That's where you get that. For a homestead, you know, and you're, and when you switch the highest and best use of someone wanting to own a piece of, of land to build a house on, or even just to use for a horse farm or something along those lines, I shift from a price per acre to a total price. You know, a real life example would be a hundred acres where I and where I am in, in Eastern North Carolina um, for hunting recreational use could be worth $2,500 an acre. A 10 acre homestead could be worth $50,000. So it's, 
it's twice, you know, you're, you're, you're doubling your money on it, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a purchase price. And there's, I mean, I work with a broad spectrum of, of buyers and I work with a lot of manufactured homes and, and modular home builders, and they offer land and home packages where, you know, the buyer can, can with one down payment finance their land and their house together. And with those buyers, they need to be around $40,000 in the land or less. So once again, knowing your market, knowing your region dictates where you can get, where your price needs to be. We want to make sure the landowner gets as much as they possibly can for the property. That's our job. Um, but it also needs to be a price at a point where it'll actually sell as well. So it's important to, to work with an agent that knows the market and will just give you, you know, rainbows and fairy tales and, and make you feel good about your property, but be a realistic with, with the selling price. Yeah. It brings to mind a, a, a property that, properties that we have under under contract right now a couple of my listings I, I got a I got a call from a local landowner who had seen one of our road signs and, and you know he called me and said hey I, I've been looking at this property for years I, I'd like to buy it uh, what do you have it listed for and I told him what the price was and I mean he he threw out a couple of expletives my way and basically told me I didn't know what I was doing and you know that I had it priced way too high and it's not worth that and I just explained back I said well you're wanting to buy it as timberland and we're not selling it as timberland. We're selling it as, as home sites and uh, homesteads, as, as you said earlier. And uh, he said, wow, you never sell it for that. You know I mean? He was just, he was angry with me and uh, well, they're, they're both under contract sure. now. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, That's it's, right. it's being able to really understand that market and also being willing to turn away some, some potential interest in that property at, at a higher acreage too. That's, and that's what people are wanting to know. They, they're wanting to know how they can increase the value of their rural property. So back to what you were saying earlier about paying close attention to factors like road frontage and making sure that when you divide that property, that you're not, you're not dividing it in such a way that, yeah, maybe you sell one piece at a premium, but the rest of them are, are, are at a discount. Other than road frontage, what are some of the factors that someone should consider when they're dividing? And, and another question is, do you do anything to enhance those smaller parcels to make them uh, more accessible or, or easier to show when, when you're thinking about that person who you want to, them to show up and envision that place as a home site? Sure. You know, one of the easiest ways to build value in a property, aside from reducing the total acres and subdividing it, which is one of our conversations, um, is a water feature, you know, and I would I would stress the importance of anyone wants to do this to speak with the local agencies and the permitting because there are certain restrictions in certain areas, you know, against building ponds and things of that sort. But you know, you can easily invest a small amount of money to create a water feature such as a pond, a little fish pond, and it'll it'll hugely increase the value of the property. Majority of the buyers that that I work with. One of the first things on their list today they want on a piece of property is a river, a creek, a stream, a pond, a lake, something that's got water on it. So not only are you increasing the value of your property, you're also opening the property up to a market of buyers that's one, your property will be at the top of their list because now it has something that they want. So, you know, nothing really sells, sells land like acreage, but water features and access, access is huge. You know, most people want to have paved road frontage or at least have frontage on a, a state or, or locally maintained road. DD easements, in my opinion, 
are fine. If you have a, a proper deeded right-of-way or deeded access easement that allows for ingress, egress, or even utility for, for a power line, all those, in my, my opinion, are, are fine. Um, just as good as, as having, you know, um, state-maintained road fronts, but many buyers don't want that. They want to be on a road. They don't trust or believe in a deeded easement. So when we subdivide tracks, I do it in the manner where um, we want to make sure every parcel has access to a state maintained road and has enough width that if they want to run a power line, they can um, into the property. You know, here locally in, in Eastern North Carolina, you know, most utility easements are 30 feet wide or, or larger. So if you subdivide a track that has 20 feet of road frontage, it's going to become difficult to get a power line into the property without reaching out to your neighboring landowners. So to answer your question, I mean, access is huge. Water feature is huge, you know, in, in cleared land, you know, a piece of cutover, you know, where they harvested all the timber on the property. That's one of the most least desirable pieces of property. Um, if you could take a piece of property like that and remove the stumps, remove the, the, the debris and run a disc over it and clean it up, for the amount of money it takes to do that, you know, you could two two x what you're putting back in your pocket um, just for making improvements like that. Just like a house, you got the, the curb appeal curb appeal factor that that kicks in for everybody, even on acreage. That's right, and a lot of people don't have a vision. I mean, that's that's the the, the most difficult one of the most difficult parts of of selling land is a buyer likes to see what's in front of them, and it's hard for them to envision what it could be. So. I've always been a proponent for landowners to put a little money into, the, into your property to help the buyer see its full potential, and you'll get that back out. And a lot of times, you'll get more out for doing that. Yeah, we run into that with uh, Doja work a lot, where we see a really strong return on investment for that. You know, trying to show a property with no roads is like trying to show a house with no doors. You know, you're just kind of stuck on the outside <laughs> looking in. We see a lot of return in that. You know, what about you? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we see that a lot uh, with either gifted or inherited land. You know, we're dealing with a situation now in, in Baldwin County where we've got a piece of property that we've listed that was on the market for a year or two before we had it. You know, it sat there. Great property, but it's a large track. Really had a lot of good opportunities for division. And, you know, I explained all this to the landowner, showed them how we do it, price points for each. And they agreed. So we're systematically doing that. And the first parcel that we put on the market was a piece that was already geographically divided by a large creek bottom that you had to drive out of the the main part of the property to get down to the south end. But it had its own road frontage and access to utilities. So we went ahead and broke it out, raised the price from the asking price over I think almost $400 an acre and had competing offers and sold it for full price within two weeks of putting it on the market. It'd been out there for $400 less than an acre for almost two years as a whole, but just in that one division. And that's, I mean, still 50 to 60 acres. This isn't a lot, you know, raise the price $400 an acre overnight. That's not only an opportunity for the landowner, but that's the opportunity for the guys looking to buy land too. Because if you had been working with a, a buyer in that situation, Clint, I mean, you could have told them the exact same thing that you told the landowner. They could have come in and bought that property at, $400 an acre less and then turned around and sold it and been able to make some money uh, immediately and then had a little smaller parcel that was probably within a, a price point that they wanted to be. That's right. I mean, I, you know, I feel like it's my responsibility to our client, the, the landowner, to tell them about these opportunities. 
I may not always, you know, choose to pursue all of them or at least not to the full degree, but I want them to be aware of it. And then after that, if they choose not to do it, then we'll use it as a marketing tool to the market as well, you know, to help move the property as a whole. Well, that, that's, a, that's a classic example too. I think this sometimes people don't realize this. The, the key point in this, in this example that Clint just gave is when they created that 50-acre parcel, they ended up having competing offers for it. So what does that tell you? That tells me that there was a high demand for smaller tracks in that area comparable to what else was available and what the, your, your average size parcel is for that area to be able to, to price it where they price it, which was obviously still within that market demand and then have competing offers in place on it. And so, I mean, these are the kinds of things that if you don't know what's going on in your market, you're going to miss and miss out potentially big time on added value because someone may not be aware of that demand that's there. You know, and that's something, a question I get a lot, and, and Kaylin, I'll, I'll direct this one at you, is, is when we look at a tract and, and we're talking about doing something like this and we see a, a value discrepancy, uh, an opportunity, we should really call it, where by dividing that track, we can potentially sell those smaller tracks for a much, much higher price per acre. Uh, the question that comes back to me a lot is, well, what do I do if I want to, if I would sell the, the full track, you know, the, the larger acreage and where do I price that? So if you've got that five, uh, that hundred acre track and you're going to divide it into 20 acre parcels and that, uh, that price per acre is double at, at 20 acres, what do you then do when you're marketing the hundred acre track and putting it, putting it out on the market? Where do you price it? so that it's uh, attractive? Good question. So in a, back to what Clint and Jason were just, just speaking about, a lot of people may not know this, but if you're a landowner, obviously you want your property to be seen by buyers, right? That, that's the whole intent is to get the exposure that's needed in order to bring a buyer to the table. Aside, we've talked a lot about increasing value, increasing value, you know, getting as much as you possibly can for the property. But one thing we haven't really hit on is, is exposure. There's a lot of buyers that are on, you know, different land websites searching for land. And there's criteria that say, you know, don't, you know, I want to look at properties between, you know, zero to, to 50 acres. So your 100 acre tract of land won't even show up on their feed. Um, it won't be a result. So by subdividing it, you're also exposing it to buyers that otherwise would have never seen it. Um, and I, I tell landowners, you know, why would you want to limit yourself to a smaller buyer pool? You know, you can, and we've, we've listed properties where we proposed it being subdivided, uh, in the smaller tracts and sticking with our hundred acre example, you know, we'll do, we'll do our, our 20 acre pieces, but we'll also have the hundred acre master listing out there also. So we're hitting the people that are looking for a hundred acres and we're also finding the people that that are uh, wanting just, you know, just 20 acres. So you're not limiting yourself to any, any buyer, you're reaching all of them. And again, it's important to reach out to a land professional because there's a way that that, that needs to be done to not hurt yourself in the future. Uh, I've recently, you know, just finished a thousand acre project where we sold it in 13 different transactions, but we moved from the back of the property to the front 
um, and it had good access. And the reason is, is if you have a thousand acres of contiguous land, you're subdividing it, you know, and you're a landowner, you don't want to be left with 50 acres in the middle of the property when it's all said and done. So you can you can work through it from from one end to another, or or, or try to sell it in phases. We've done that where you know we don't want to saturate the market at one time and just and have 20 listings in one spot. We'll throw five out, and once those sell, we'll we'll we'll, we'll do the next stage and throw five out more. And that way, you're you're continually getting an interest, and you don't want any of your listings getting stale. You know, once a property sits on the market, like what Clint was saying earlier. You know, you want to sell it faster, as fast as you can. And and the longer a property sits on the market, you know, the, the less probability it has of, of someone actually pulling the trigger on it. People develop a, a negative connotation, a negative per- perception of the property, even if it's not warranted just by that, you know, days on the market little symbol at the bottom of the page. Say, so, well, it's on the market for, for 200 days. What's wrong with it? You know, you don't want to hit it all at one time. You can kind of stagger the sales over a time period. It's funny you bring up that example because it that just happened to me in a couple of properties I had listed uh, here in Florida and they were on opposite sides of the roads from one another and separate landowners. The property on the north side of the road was 93 acres, purely farmland, farmland and timberland, had no home, had no utilities, no improvements. I had that property on the market for, and it was priced accurately, just not a lot of demand for that in that area. And uh, that property had been on the market 11 months uh, when I listed 40 acres on the south side of the road that had a home and had farmland. Same piece of dirt, uh, but it had improvements. And the day we listed the, the 40 acres, we had competing offers on that 40 acres. And the person who bought the 40 ended up buying the 93 across the road. And, you know, they, they weren't interested in that 93 alone but once there was a home that, that was included with it they became interested in it and that's the power of exactly what you're talking about of exposure uh you know in fact in that land tour 360 you know as you're panning around uh that 40 acres I, I went ahead and said hey this 93 is also available there and, and that's a that's a perfect example of what you're talking about i really like what you just said and that, that gives me a lot of ideas about working from the back of the property forward. So if I'm understanding you correctly there, what you're saying is, is even though you were taking that thousand acres and dividing it up 13 different ways, you didn't put all 13 properties on the market at the same time. You, you really focused on, on those interior parcels. And then once you had them sold, you, were you doing it at five at a time, two at a time? And, and as you sold one, were you releasing the next? How were you doing that? You know, on that specific track, we did two phases. We did five and then six. And really it's it's subjective to the landowner on, on what they want. You know, we can give our, our, our recommendation and our advice based off of, of our our history doing this. It's subjective to the property. Every property is different. Some properties you don't in, in local areas you don't have to phase or stagger it out. You know, there's such a demand for those those smaller tracks. You just throw them all out there at one time. And if a landowner is comfortable with saying, hey, you know, I'm okay if I have a little bit of land left over to keep, then, then that's what we'll do. But it's really subjective to the land and the landowner and, and how you go about doing it. But access is, is the most important thing. Uh, we were able to work from the back of the property to the front because there was an access road that went directly down the middle of the property. So we were able, able to stage it that way. 
and we were able to do it where our smallest piece we sold was right around 25 acres and the biggest piece was 314 or so acres and what's interesting is is we didn't get this is i think this is important too we didn't get surveys on the property prior to listing it as separate parcels yeah that's, and that's i'm important. really glad we did it because i can look at a piece of property and say this is the best i think it's the best way it's going to sell but I've shown it. Uh, it's happened many times where I'll show the 40 acre subdivided tract and the buyer says, well, I don't want all 100 acres, but I don't want 40. I, I would like to have 50 and I, and I would like this property line to be over here. And that's when you say, okay, we can do that. We can accommodate that. But since you're changing the property lines, you want to you know, make it more what you want, then you, know, you, can, you can share in the survey cost and, or, or pay for the survey. And it allows the buyer to not be restricted to just what you think is the best way. I've subdivided tracks. Last year, it happened on a piece of riverfront property. We subdivided into five pieces. I got the first two sold. We had three left over. I showed it to a gentleman, ended up buying everything that was left, all three pieces. Had we had a survey done, that would have been a wasted expense on the, on the seller side that would have never needed to be absorbed. Yeah, that's a huge thing that I see too is you get at the end of the day, how much you've got in a piece of property dictates your, your profit margin here. So if you've got a seller that a lot of them come in to these divisions, when you start having these conversations, they think you've got a survey, you got to have all this engineering work done, et cetera, et cetera. And like you said, you don't want to go out there and make assumptions about what the market wants, spend all this money and find out you were wrong. Or you've got a buyer coming in and look at one lot that really wants three. Uh, so you've basically wasted your money as a seller for three surveys uh, on the front end. You know, I'd much rather have conceptual divisions out there. Let the market tell me what they like, be able to adjust uh, and really focus on as a seller or a landowner investing the money into things I know I'm going to get return on like road work, you know, aesthetic projects, you know, the water features, uh, timber management, understory work like fire or chemical work, things like that, that we've discussed in the past, as opposed to spending all this money on surveys and engineering and things like that, where I don't know that I'm going to get a return on that investment. You know, guys, today we've, uh, we've talked about this as if it's, it's all rainbows and unicorns and talked about a lot of the pros of subdividing land, uh, how that can potentially make you more than, than selling it as a larger track. But, you know, Kaylin, in your market and, and when you've done this in the past, what, what do folks, landowners and, and people that are purchasing, investors that are purchasing land with the intention to do this, what are some of the things that they need to watch out for? And what do they need to look for in, in their market? Right. Well, there's definitely more pros and cons or we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be doing it. It's really regional. You know, in the mountainous areas, you want to look at grade and slope and your base is a very rocky area the practicality of putting in roads and where I am in eastern North Carolina it's a lot of jurisdictional wetland flood zones there's so many factors topography soil types there's a there's a, a lot of things that that can hurt you but you need to have professionals that can help you navigate through those waters you know there's there's permitting procedures for disturbing you know for for wetland areas and things of that sort that um, it's important to have relationships with those that that know um, how to go about doing it but the land itself can can create problematic you know areas with with subdividing 
But the most important thing I think is to do it in a manner that, that promotes sustainability of the property and gets people into the piece of property that otherwise, you know, wouldn't be able to afford to have a piece of it. And then by subdividing, you're opening the door for, to make the landowner more money and you're opening the door for buyers that otherwise wouldn't be able to have a piece of land that now they can't afford to have a piece of land and, and call it their own. Yeah. Uh, we see that a lot. You know, people think of subdividing as some negative thing and done in the proper manner. It's, it's, you know, something I call conservation through use. You got a piece of property that may have been um, in a family for a long time and, and going backwards because the, the people who originally acquired the property aren't here any longer. It's just not being taken care of. And you go in there and you divide and develop that track in a manner um, that makes it accessible to others, you know, both financially and physically, then they take, they come in and, and that pride that was originally in, in owning that land is renewed through that, that new owner. Uh, and long-term, you know, it really protects that legacy that, you know, that the original owners had in it when they first put it together. You know, it also makes it more marketable, you know, when you go in and do these tracks, develop it and divide these tracks in a thoughtful manner. Like Kaylin said, you know, for example, we got a piece of property here in Baldwin County that just closed last week. That was about just under 50 acres. It's in the city limits of Spanish Fort. And it's one of the fastest growing MSAs in the country. Uh, you would think that property would sell extremely quickly. Well, it didn't have any roads on it. It'd been on the pro- on the market in the past with other companies. Everybody agreed it was a great location, but you couldn't get in there to see it. So when they brought it to me, I, you know, I told them like others said, "Well, you got to. We need to open it up." But nobody else could really explain how. Um, so what we did was we went to the to the parts of the property that really carried the most, you know, romance, the scenic vistas, the uh, old growth timber areas, the water features, things like that. And we designed the road system to highlight those features. Uh, and I went in and personally flagged all the roads out. Uh, we navigated around wetland areas, things like that, that could be problematic, uh, and brought the property all the way back out to the public road frontage. Then we got one of our equipment partners in, go in to build the road with my oversight, all those things. So we, you know, so we were involved all the way through and, the property sold again with multiple offers on it in under eight weeks and it'd been on the market previously um, probably a year or two uh, and it sold for $11,000 an acre. How much did that road cost that you had to put in? (laughs) $1,200. That's a pretty good coat of paint. Yeah. Well, I I think that, um, you know, what I'm hearing is something that I can attest to for everybody that's a part of national land realty. And what Clint's talking about is stewardship. And you've got to be passionate about land to be successful in land sales. And, you know, we're talking about a topic where we're talking about taking properties and making them smaller. And it's important to understand that what we're not, we're not talking about just going in there and just cutting it into as small pieces as possible to make as much money as possible for our clients and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's really about, educating the public and giving people the opportunity to, to have a, as cliche as this now sounds, but to have a piece of the American dream and that's owning land. And if you think back to earlier in the year when this pandemic hit, all of our public lands set records for people coming out and visiting to the extent that then they got closed because of the fear of overpopulation. And so then people didn't have anywhere to go if they didn't already own their own property. And so they got stuck back inside their own house. The, the reality of what we're talking about is 
is creating opportunity for people to be able to enjoy the uh, freedom to be able to go out and enjoy land that you own, whatever size that may be, whether you want to build a house on it or you just want to go and pitch a tent and take your kids out there and enjoy God's creation. And the stewardship component of this for representatives of National Land Realty, for what we consult with landowners, the partners that we choose to work with, it, it all goes back to how can we highlight the best parts of the property that we work with to ensure that people understand what land truly has to offer? Obviously, from a return on investment, but also more importantly, from all of the great benefits that you get from being able to get out into the outdoors and be able to say, hey, this is mine and I can invite my friends out to it and we can come out and enjoy what God created. So that's for me for representing this company is one of the most powerful parts of it. And it's one of the reasons why our mission statement is we exist to make things grow. That's not just the pocketbooks of our clients. I mean, that obviously that's an important aspect of it, but I thought about that from the aspect of growing the opportunity for people to be able to appreciate what land ownership is all about and people that may normally have never had the opportunity to do that. So, I think it's important for people to get that. Yeah. Grow it, like you said, Jason, and also growing the awareness. Uh, I think that's a big component of it. You mentioned it, but growing the awareness of land. I mean, you can't, you don't want to conserve until you get to appreciate what you're conserving. And that's why, you know, hunters are the biggest conservationists is that we have a appreciation for the beauty of the animals that we're, we're seeking and, and we want to see them thrive. You know, we're not trying to deplete the resource. We want to see that resource uh, expand. And it's the same thing with land ownership. You know, you, there's just, there's something to be said for being able to stand on your own dirt. And, you know, I think summing it all up today is what I've heard from everybody is that land values, you know, we talked earlier in the show, land values are land values. And that's a good data point to look at, but you've got to talk to someone locally who understands that uh, what the highest and best use is for a piece of property and be able to spot those opportunities to do this. Not every single tract can be divided and it's going to increase the value. So reaching out to somebody locally is, is the most important thing. And Kaylin, I, you know, I guess for folks that want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, just go to you know, nationalland.com. At the top, you can, there's, there's a team icon. You can really search uh, any of our agents in any of the states that, that you might be in, my email is ccampbell at nationalland.com or phone is 855-384-LAND. There's many different ways. Uh, I'd say nationalland.com, the website, is, is, is a great tool uh, to use also, whether it's to reach out to me or just see what's on the market and learn more about, about your, your area. And Clint, you know, one of the things that we've been able to do as well is, is use our data to be able to identify these these opportunities that we're talking about and and also use our GIS team to identify the locations where these opportunities exist. I, I know you and I have taken a few people through where we've we've analyzed their property you know in real time and and been able to show them with with GIS but also with comparable sales how to spot some of these opportunities. We're, we're going through it with a landowner uh, right now, who's trying to decide how, how to divide, 
their property in Covington County, Alabama. Uh, if folks want to reach out to you, Clint, or reach out to us and, and have us take a look at their their property from a GIS perspective, what number do you want to give them? Well, we've got the main office number that Kayla just gave, or we've got our, our local regional office number at 855-NLR-LAND. Give you or I a call and what you're talking about is going in. And if somebody's, you know, they listen to the show or, or got an idea that they want to divide or develop, but they're not quite sure how, you know, we can go in and, and analyze the, the physical and the external factors of the market and of the property itself and, and try to come up with the, the best way to do it in the shortest amount of time. Yeah. You know, if we can't do it, we're going to point you to the right person within the company that can, because we don't know every, every region and every local market. So we'll definitely point you that way. But folks, I hope that this has helped you understand some of the opportunities that are out there with subdividing land and how you can make your property, your rural property, uh, uh, more valuable uh, in doing it and, but doing it the right way. Definitely reach out to us if you've got a, a specific piece the, that you want to look at and uh, just be looking for more shows on the topic. We're going to cover this a little more in depth in future shows. That's going to wrap it up this week. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would like us to email you the podcast, it's really easy to join our email list. Just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land to join our weekly email. We'll send you the new show each week. Until then, I uh, all enjoy this cold front and we'll see you next week. This week's show is brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800 955 They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. A great gift for the outdoorsman in your life, Black Belt Bounty features award-winning writers, photography, and recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. Pick up your copy at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.